0: For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. Uh, So my name's Richard Nykirk, as you heard. I'm a member here. Uh, My family and I have been members here um, for just about a year. I'm also an active duty Marine Corps officer and uh, I'm doing a one-year fellowship at the Kennedy School, which is what brings us to Boston. Um, My family and I, we served in the Marine Corps for 20 years, and so over those 20 years, it's involved 10 moves. And as Fletcher's mentioned, one of the things that we found out, kind of the hard way, is if we don't get involved right away and find a church community, a community of believers to plug into at these various places we go, we can quickly become isolated, and we quickly... Uh, can kind of fall into whatever's going on in, in the secular society around us. And it's been very important for us to aggressively seek out a church and get plugged in uh, quickly. And so we are super thankful just for the City on a Hill community and uh, and for this group of believers here who have really embraced us and taken us in and, uh, and helped us to become part of your community. And so we just really want to say thank you and uh, it's going to be sad uh, when we move from here next month. When Fletcher asked me to to preach a couple weeks ago, um, the Lord really brought to mind um, the work that City on a Hill is doing here in Boston. And specifically, Fletcher mentioned last week, you know, what it looks like to flourish um, in exile. So as he's been preaching through Genesis, we kind of see that for the for the Israelites as they leave and and go into exile, you know, what what this flourishing looks like. And to put that another way, it's, hey, what does it look like to serve as an ambassador for Christ? Why is it that Paul uses that analogy here in 2 Corinthians uh, 20? And so today we're going to take a look at our text more deeply, and we're going to examine some ways that Christians are called to be ambassadors for Christ. So here we sit in Boston, the intellectual capital of the United States and uh, an area that once flourished, right, with this love for Christ and very deep knowledge of the scriptures and dedication, but's gradually kind of lost that and has become a much more secular, you know, uh, environment that we find ourselves in. And so as Christians living in this sort of community, how do we approach that as it there's a tension with our Christian culture? as we live here in this secular community. And so as we go through that, it can be easy for us to feel maybe isolated here, maybe to feel like we're the only ones that are working for the Lord, that maybe it's a little bit of a hopeless task, that um, we don't see the fruits of that labor, um, particularly right away. And so one of the closest parallels that maybe we have to living in a culture that's not one's own is that of an ambassador. And so this topic probably comes at a great time for many of us, if you've been checking out the Netflix series, The Diplomat. uh, Many of us are probably envisioning our lives as an ambassador, living this opulence and exciting life overseas, uh, solving complex problems and and doing so with numerous wardrobe changes and everything. Um, I will say, uh, Over my career in the Marine Corps, I've been fortunate to interact with lots of um, ambassadors and embassies and missions, and so I'm gonna draw on some of that experience uh, as we walk through um, this text this morning. The Department of Defense works very closely with the Department of State uh, all around the world, really, to further U.S. uh, interests in a bunch of different countries overseas. And so one of my recent assignments uh, prior to coming here was as sort of a combination policy advisor and executive assistant to the general that was in charge of all special operations uh, for the U.S. in an area spanning from Hawaii all the way out to India. And uh, in that role, I got to travel with him and sit in all the meetings and interact with, you know, certainly all the embassy staff, but also the, you know, the ambassadors and the chargés and the and the deputy chiefs of mission and whatnot. And you know, as we would travel to all these different countries, to Mongolia and Sri Lanka, the Maldives, Brunei, Singapore, Thailand, Korea, the Philippines, like on and on and on, it was interesting to go to these embassies and to watch how the ambassadors you know, carried themselves. How did they interact with the culture that they were in? Um, because many of our first meetings would be with the ambassador, right? We'd get to a country, we'd immediately kind of go to the embassy, we'd have a meeting with the ambassador and their team, We'd get a rundown kind of on the country and the different, you know, country team objectives. And, uh, and, and then, you know, we would be able to go and do our work um, kind of furthering those policy objectives as we had our meetings with the, our various counterparts. And so, you know, as we consider the role of an ambassador, let's just briefly talk about why do we even have ambassadors, right? Why does Walt, uh, Paul liken us and make this comparison of an ambassador, And the role of an ambassador is is an ancient one. It can be found in a lot of ancient texts um, from the history of Egypt to certainly Greek city-states like Spartan and Athens. And countries would exchange people. They would exchange these ambassadors um, to really help communicate and deal with other countries. And the role itself and the terminology, the vernacular that goes along with embassies really brings about a lot of religious undertones Right? The, the ambassador is called the Chief of Mission. The, the actual embassy that we established somewhere is called a mission. And so right It's the mission in Sri Lanka, and the ambassador' is called the Chief of Mission. We often abbreviate that just as you know comms. you hear people throwing that slang around, which you don't get in the Netflix series. Um, although you do hear it in the second uh, in-command person's title, right? DCM, which is Deputy Chief of Mission.. Um, And so these these missions going all the way back were really to kind of evangelize the other country with with your country. It was to not only represent your citizens that might find themselves in those areas, but also to evangelize them with what your country is doing. Ambassadors in the present context, they're chosen. They're hand-selected by the president. They're confirmed by the Senate. And then they're sworn in, so they're given an oath. Then they're given a commission, Much like, uh, you know, and a commission kind of binds someone filling an office with the person that's giving them that authority, and then ambassadors are equipped. Most of the time in our present-day context, they come with that expertise, Um, but not always. And then they're sent out, right? And you can see the parallels between how the Christian life is described and how this role of the ambassador is, is done. And so, similar to an ambassador, we have been chosen by God, we've been commissioned, We've been equipped and are being sent out into our communities to represent the one who sends us, to represent God. And so, for an ambassador, the two most important duties that they do is one, to be a physical representation, right? A physical manifestation, representation of the country that's sending them, and also to carry a message from their country. Uh, they represent and they speak with total authority, not on their own merit, but on behalf of the one. That sent them. And so, as we look at today's text, we're going to see that we're being called to do the same thing. Um, And the message that we're to carry was the last verse we ended up there with a distillation, really, of the gospel truths in verse 21 that says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so, as we take a quick look at this passage, we're going to look at three things that ambassadors do. And these are three things. They're not the only three things that ambassadors do, but three things that ambassadors do. And so three things that we ought to do as ambassadors for Christ. So the first, uh, the first thing we'll look at is ambassadors go to cities. Ambassadors go to cities. The second is that ambassadors are in the culture, but they're not of the culture. And we'll unpack kind of what that looks like. And lastly, we're going to explore that ambassadors speak or act with the authority of the one who sends them. So ambassadors speak with the authority of the one who sent them. So let's take a look at the first point. Uh, Ambassadors go to cities. So why do ambassadors go to cities? Well, As we know, cities are important. (laughs) Uh, We know this certainly in our present context, but also true in biblical times, and we can see numerous examples of cities in the Bible. You don't have to read very far to learn of the cities of certainly Sodom and Gomorrah, Babylon, Nineveh, Jerusalem, these cities were places that offered security. They are the centers of economic prosperity, of exchange of thought, rule of law, education, arts. They're the cultural, political, and societal centers of any society. And the Bible promises us as believers, if we look and skip all the way ahead to the very end of the Bible, it promises believers a new life, a better life, a life that will happen where? In a city. This world's going to pass away, and when it gets replaced, in the end... It's going to be with a city. So listen to these verses here, In I'll read you just two. So the first one's from Hebrews 11, 16. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And Revelation 21, verse 22, talks about this vision. And I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so when this world passes away, it's going to be replaced with a city where we will dwell with God. And so you can see this foreshadowing of just the importance of cities And so because of the importance of cities, right, that's where ambassadors go. It'd make no sense to send an ambassador to the countryside in a little shack and, you know, hey, there's the U.S. mission is out in the middle of this beautiful field under a tree uh, that nobody ever goes to, right? They go to these centers, they go to these cultural centers, uh, because that's where you can influence the culture and the society uh, where you find yourself. Another kind of nuance there is ambassadors don't pick their postings. Right? So they don't get to say, hey, here's where I want to go. They serve at the pleasure of the president, and they are directed, they're told. "Right, This is where you will go on behalf of the United States, and you will serve. And similarly for us, we are given a mission from God. We're sent out in the Great Commission. Right, We don't have a choice necessarily of where we go, but we go and we follow our Lord and Savior and serve him there. Uh, so once in the city... You know, ambassadors often engage with the intelligentsia, right? With the kind of academic world, with the political world, because that's who has the influence. And we see this really in Paul in uh, Acts 17 with Paul, right? Paul, when Paul's in Athens, he's there and he's originally speaking with the Jews and Gentiles in the synagogue. He's preaching God's word. He's just being faithful to the word. And then... The Athenians, being somewhat inquisitive, hear about this and say, "Hey, we want to we want to dialogue with you." And so they, the the court, you know, the, the basically the societal uh, heartbeat of, of Athens calls him in, uh, and and he does so in this agora, which is just the central meeting place of Athens, right? And so he he talks to the court, which is called the uh, Areopagus, uh, and and it's really. The Agora, this meeting place, is really where all business and culture and government and stuff got done. So he gets called in in front of kind of all of the smartest Athenians, the ones with the most influence and power. And they say, hey, talk to us about this message that we've heard that you are are talking about or preaching. And so similarly, we're called, and we have a great opportunity here in Boston, um, right, to engage the culture we're in, to be engaging. And we do that by going to the cities Uh, not to just sit back passively. Another thing to probably note is, by definition, ambassadors are in the minority. They're in a foreign country. They're not surrounded by their own people, by their own culture. And so to be an effective ambassador in someone else's land, you must probably do two things. You must love the city that you're in. You must love what you're doing. And you must believe that what you're doing is worthwhile. If an ambassador doesn't love, you know, kind of their posting or the country they've been assigned to, they're not going to do a good job. And similarly, if you go to a country and you don't think what you're doing is worthwhile or going to have any value or meaning, you're not going to be very effective as an ambassador. And so these two hurdles are the same two hurdles that we face as Christians that we have to overcome. Love for those in the city. Love for those that we are speaking with and interacting with on a daily basis and also believing that the mission that God has equipped us for is a worthwhile one, one of worth using our lives and our talents. And so I'll give you two examples from the Bible that we see um, these kind of playing out in, you know, both uh, love for the city and also a feeling of um, being worthwhile and that your mission is is worth doing. So if we look at Jonah, Jonah's called to go to the great city of Nineveh. And many of us are familiar with the story. Jonah absolutely does not want to go tries to run away, ends up in the bottom of the sea for a couple days, you know, finally goes, Uh, and his message to the Ninevites was to repent. So God called Nineveh and said, go to the Ninevites, tell them how they're living, what they're doing is wrong, and tell them to repent. So Jonah kind of, you know, we, we don't know, but it seems very Certainly does not want to go. And then when he goes, I can only assume kind of grudgingly, half heartedly. And he's like, hey, Nineveh, you should probably repent. You know, you, you shouldn't do this stuff. It's, it's not good. And what happens? The Ninevites repent, they turn from their ways. And God has mercy on the city and saves them. And is Jonah like rejoicing and like, this is amazing. What an, what an awesome miracle. No, Jonah is like bitter and upset. And he's like, they deserve justice. Why did you save them, God? Like, what, you know? Jonah's having this this inward wrestling. Why? Because Jonah did not love the city. Jonah did not love the Ninevites. God still uses him. But man, Jonah had this front row seat to this amazing conversion of an entire city that was spared. And he's bitter about it. He's upset that God would have mercy upon, upon people that turn from him. So that's, that's on the one side. The other example of kind of feeling that our mission is maybe not worthwhile or, or, or hopeless, um, we can find when we look at the story of Elijah. Now, Elijah was a prophet from the Old Testament, and the kingdom of Israel had been divided into a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom, and this is in the northern kingdom, and there's this, they have a king, Ahab. He's married to Queen Jezebel. Both of them are very wicked. They've turned from following God. They're following, they're worshiping two idols, kind of Baal and Asherah. And in 1 Kings 19, we see God coming to Elijah and says, Hey, Elijah, go and speak to the king. Go and speak to Ahab and tell him to take all his prophets of Baal, like 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah and the whole of the Israelite population and go up to Mount Carmel. And, and then, oh, by the way, Elijah, you're going to represent me. So one of you against like 850 of these other prophets in all of the northern kingdom kind of getting to watch as observers. And so Elijah, you know, speaks to Ahab and basically says, hey, let's, let's figure out whose who's God is, is actually God. So we'll kind of set up a test. You make an altar, you know, put some wood on it, sacrifice a cow. Don't light it though. Pray to your god, and if your god comes down, and lights the fire. Like we'll know that Baal or Asherah, like they're the god. And then hey, if if you can't get that to work, I'll try it over here, and I'll pray to the god of Israel. And and if that works, then then right, we'll have this big test, and no one can deny, you know, who's, who's god, and and change your ways. And so. You know, the, the Baal and Asherah prophets get to go first, and uh, they start early in the morning, and nothing's happening. They're praying, nothing's happening. So they start dancing, and nothing's happening. They start, like, cutting themselves. It's like, going on through the day, and there's Elijah's kind of, like, taunting them. Anyways, they get, like, a whole day, like, most of the time in the day to, like, try to prove that their God can can do this. And then Elijah right? not only Then says, hey, you know what? Let's make it a little more difficult. Douse mine with a whole bunch of water. And then he prays to God, and God sends down a consuming fire that not only consumes the sacrifice, but also licks up all the water, right? That's it's this massive, like, statement in front of the whole, the whole tribe of Israel. And so Ahab leaves there, goes down, and tells his wife about this. And he's like, you know, I can only imagine, like, oh man, this was, this was not good for us, this was crazy, you know, we, we're not following the right God here, and what does Jezebel do? Jezebel is so angry, she makes an oath and sends word to Elijah that before the day is out, you know, I, I am going to kill you, and if I don't kill you, then like, let me be dead, like, that's how serious this oath is. I am coming after you, and I'm going to kill you for what you just did. And so Elijah, having just witnessed this amazing display of God's power and, like, the truth of God, what's his reaction? He loses all confidence. He, he thinks he's totally alone. He cries out to God that he's the only believer left, that he's about to die, and he, like, flees and hides. And Paul explains this to us in Romans 11 verses two through five, and it says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scriptures say of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men, who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And so Elijah, even after witnessing God's amazing power, has this feeling of loneliness and hopelessness and that he's surrounded and he's the only one around and that his life is threatened by this society. And I can't help but think oftentimes, I know I have felt this way and it's easy for us to maybe feel this way, here in Cambridge or Somerville or, you know, any of these other cities around Boston that, hey, we're the only ones striving for the Lord. We're the only ones that are remaining faithful. We're the only ones that are still here, and we can kind of have this hopelessness or this feeling of isolation. It's easy not to love the city because of this, to convince ourselves that being an ambassador for Christ isn't worth it, that we're alone, but the encouragement is look around. You are not alone. This, I think, is the power of the City on a Hill network of churches. There are gospel-believing churches that God is preserving and raising up and using even in the most secular or far-flung stretches of the world that God's power cannot be defeated, will not be defeated. And we just need to sometimes remind ourselves of that. Elijah just needed to pause and think back on what he had just seen hours earlier. And he could have just taken heart that his God is alive and working and powerful. And for many of us, we get so caught up in the mundane of the day-to-day, the drag of you know just work and life, and we think, man, we are the only ones here striving for God. And it's not true. And God promises us that he will preserve a remnant. And sitting on a hill, you have been so encouraging to our family personally as we, we moved from Hawaii to Boston, right, to almost a foreign country compared to Hawaii, and, uh, and find Bible-believing Christians here to worship with. All right, so the second point is that ambassadors are in the culture, but not of the culture, so an ambassador, right? An ambassador can't be confused about their citizenship. They can't be like, oh, am I, you know, a citizen of Australia or of the United States? No, like an ambassador represents the country that they are sent to. So even though they're living in a foreign country, they're never confused about their identity. They know who they are, and oftentimes, right? They remind themselves. They're always wearing lapel pins with U.S. flags, and there's U.S. flags flying from the embassy, and all this other kind of stuff. Um, And as Christians, you know, it's the same way. We have to continually remind ourselves about who we are and the culture that we're in. And really, that's one of the great benefits of us gathering together like this in worship. It's one of the great benefits of our community groups to remind ourselves and be in community with like-minded believers, to remind ourselves of who our true identity is, right? And and who it's with. And I think a lot of times it's easier for us to... um, It's easier for us to remember where identity is when we're in a a place that's very different from our own, right? It's much harder when we're in a place that we feel very comfortable, that we really, like, identify with. And I'll give you kind of two examples just from, again, spending time in embassies and traveling around. One of our uh, trips that we took was to Brunei, which I had never heard of the country Brunei before. Uh, But it's a small kingdom. It's an Islamic state. Um on the island of Borneo, so the southern part of the South China Sea, so it's like the Philippines are to the east, Indonesia's like to the south, Malaysia is to the west, you know, and like eventually, you know, Thailand and stuff is to the north, but it's it's an island, it's surrounded by a whole bunch of water. It's really kind of far out there. But this the island of Borneo. Very, you know, it has the kingdom of Brunei on it, and then like part of it is territory that's Malaysia's, and part of it's territory that's Indonesia's. So you can just like travel around this island and kind of go into three different countries, and they're not like they're not divided geographically. It's just you're going through the rainforest, and all of a sudden you go from Malaysia to Indonesia. So there's kind of some strange reasons and geography for how it got divided up that way, but. Anyways, Brunei is a, for, is a former uh, British colony, and um, you know, it's, it's a super wealthy state. They had a lot of oil revenues, and, um, but it's also predominantly uh, Muslim. And so we're getting ready to board our flight. We, we flew from Singapore into uh, the capital of Brunei, which is uh, Bandar-Siri Begawan, And as I settled into my seat for this flight, we're flying on, you know, Royal Brunei Airlines. I'm looking around, and I'm like, first of all, I'm the only, like, white male Westerner on this flight at all. I'm wearing, like, Western clothes. Everyone else is wearing, you know, typical just kind of, you know, Muslim garb. And um, as we start to taxi, you know, we're all getting ready. I'm getting ready for, you know, hey, latch your seat belts, and put your tray tables up, and all that kind of stuff. And instead, over the intercom, they start playing this Islamic prayer, which I had never, I just had never been exposed to that before. Even in all my time in the Middle East, uh, flying on, you know, Qatar Airlines, and, and I mean, all, all different kinds. And so, you know, it's called the Doha Safar, and it's basically a prayer for safety. Quite frankly, probably not a bad idea. We should all, you know, do that. <laughs> uh, but, like, when this, as this prayer starts over the intercom, all the TV screens start, like, playing like a thing. But it's all it's all Muslim. I, I don't, you know, uh, speak the language. And so I'm totally unprepared for this and unsure what to do. Like, culturally, what should I, you know, am I supposed to, like, look straight ahead? Am I supposed to, like, not move? Do I, you know, and, and so it was so out of just so out of the ordinary um then I was just it it was just this you know it just hits you like I am way out of my element I am way out of my culture I don't know what I should do how I should act to not offend somebody like I don't know anything you know so you you end up just kind of sitting there super quiet like looking straight ahead and uh and trying not to to do anything So when you have something that extreme that's like out of your element, it's very easy to be like, man, I am an American, I'm a Westerner, I am am way out of my element, this is not my culture. But on the other hand, if we're in a very familiar place, it can be confusing sometimes to us or we lose sight a little bit of that cultural identity. And so on a different trip, we're in Australia, we're visiting all the different kind of special forces that they have. And their special air service, their SAS, is located on the far west of Australia in a city called Perth, which is a beautiful city, but it is way far away from, like, all the rest of Australia, you know, like Sydney, Canberra, all that is, like, on the east side. Canberra is the, the capital of Australia. And so we'd been doing, like, meetings there and flew across, and it's, like, flying from D.C. to San Diego. I mean, it's, Australia is basically the same size as the continental United States. So this long flight, we land in Perth, because of like the timing and when it was, and, and, and we weren't seeing the ambassador, so you know, you'll, you'll have to bear with me a little bit. We were seeing the consul general, which you know the embassy is in a capital city of countries, and then other major cities that probably have large populations of, of Americans or, or that we just wanna try to uh, have an outpost in, we establish consulates you know, in these cities. And so you can get consular services there, you you know, as an American citizen, you can go do all the same things you could do in an embassy, but hey, you're not the embassy. You're you're a, a outreach of the embassy. And so each of these consulates is run by a consul general and they report to the ambassador. So very, very similar role, um, but just to be clear, right? I'm, I'm, we're meeting with the consul general, the person that's in charge of, of this region, uh, not the ambassador. And so, anyways, because of their schedule and our schedule and everything, we couldn't meet at the at the consulate. And so, instead, he has us over for like a brunch at his house, and it is a pretty nice place, up on the hills. And I, I mean, it is like being in Orange County, California. It's on the hills. You can see the coastline, it's like golden beaches, warm weather, breezes, we're like on his terrace, you know, eating uh, brunch and having coffee, and everyone's in western clothes, speaking English, you know, everything, we, we would all be super, yeah, I mean, you could just transport us from there to California and you wouldn't like miss a beat. And so, it's much more difficult in a place like that to realize, hey, I'm not at home, right? You, it's easy to imagine ourselves and to kind of feel at home there. And so the point of really all this is that it's so much harder to have this distinction with our culture when we're in a place that's familiar. And so we need to make sure that we are being, you know, how does our our Christian, well, I guess the point is we need to make sure that our Christian culture, our true culture, our culture of identity runs deeper, right? Right? than our social culture, of being like an American, okay, and and maybe, yeah, I don't want to get into that too much, but like, hey, our identity is with Christ. Our identity is not first and foremost with being an American. It's with serving our God, and so it's easy to fall into this trap of believing that our culture here in the U.S. is our identity, as opposed to our heavenly identity, and so what God's word says about our identity really introduces attention to us. And it's attention that we, I think, need to recognize so that we understand we live in it. And and so I'll explain the tension here in just a second, but let's, let's, la- let's listen to how God's word kind of describes how we ought to live in culture, but not be of culture. So first in Jeremiah, we have this passage where you know, Babylon had come in and destroyed Jerusalem and taken all the Israelites, most of the Israelites, um, captive. Uh, and so, this is like 50 years before Nehemiah is finally sent back to start to rebuild the, the city wall and whatnot. And in Jeremiah 29, uh, verses 4 through 8, here's what here's what it says about living in culture. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon: Build houses. Live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they might bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. And so, very clearly, here in Jeremiah, There's this mandate to not live in isolation, to not go to some compound and just like self-isolate, but to seek the welfare of the city that we live in, to seek the welfare of the society that we're at. But at the same time that we are doing that, we're to remember that our home is with God in heaven, right? And so how do we deal with this tension of being commanded to seek the welfare here on earth where we live, but also not to get drawn into to to knowing and identifying with that as our primary, you know, um, society. And so we have an example, you know, from Christ of being in the world but not of the world. And so in John 18, 36, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews but my kingdom is not from the world. And similarly, in Romans 12, 2, a verse many of us are probably familiar with, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so you see there's this tension. We're to live in the world, we're to seek its welfare, but simultaneously we're not to be of the world. We're residents here but make no mistake, we are aliens. This is not our home. We've been sent to earth as ambassadors from our home country, and it's one that we're going to return to one day. And so just like an ambassador, whether you're in Brunei or you're in Australia, you are to seek the welfare of the country you're in, but that is not your identity. You're going back home to where you come from. Live in the country, but represent our own country. And there's lots of passages in the New Testament that can talk to us about our heavenly citizenship. I won't get into all of them, but there's Philippians three twenty. Uh, if you wanted to look at, look one up, you know it says our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, another in Hebrews eleven thirteen. So Hebrews eleven, famous chapter. A lot of times in Christian circles, right? We call it the Hall of Faith because it's talking about all these patriarchs and, and, and men and women that have just displayed amazing faith in the Bible. And so this talks about, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Right? If you're a stranger and exile on earth, then you must have a homeland somewhere else. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And so, you know, these heroes of faith were exiles here, strangers and exiles on earth, because their home was somewhere else. And I think it's important, one of the things that we ought to remember as we read the Bible, you know, we call them heroes of faith now in hindsight, but these were regular people like you and I. Jonah, Elijah, regular people. I mean, look at Elijah. That is 100% me, right? I witness amazing things from God, and like hours later, I'm like, oh my goodness, where's God? You know, I totally forget about it. So we just have to remember, I think, as we read the Bible, we're reading an account of people. You know, not an account of people that were, like, amazing and, and greater than are, but they put their faith in God. And we can put our faith in God and live similar, similarly. All right, our final point. Ambassadors uh, speak or act with the authority of the one who sent them. So for those that have seen The Diplomat, uh, you know, Carrie Russell is the main character. She plays the ambassador, Kate Wyler and she's a career foreign service officer. She's supposed to get a posting in Afghanistan. She's excited about doing, like, all this, like, nitty-gritty work and, like, actually moving the ball forward on human rights and, um, I think, women's values and some other stuff on her agenda. And then she gets this call, and she gets assigned to the UK, which is this kind of, you know, posh posting. And In the series, you often see her checking in with the Secretary of State, right? They'll have these video teleconferences, and she'll be like, hey boss, what do you want me to do? This, that, you know, let me tell you what's going on. Maybe a little bit of a stretch, all right? So yes, in the real world, ambassadors talk to the Secretary of State, but ambassadors don't work for the Secretary of State. That's the cool thing about being an ambassador. You work for the president. You are the direct representative of the president, which is a direct representative of our country, to the country that you're assigned in. And so when you speak, when an ambassador speaks, they speak with the full authority of the president of the United States. They're not speaking on their own authority. They're speaking on the authority of the one that sent them. And so we can do the same thing. We are commanded to do the same thing. That is why we can be bold in our witness. Not because we're Rich Nykirk or Fletcher or anybody else, right? It's not because of us that we speak with boldness. It's because of the one that has sent us. And so, you know, I think an interesting thing: Christ came to Earth from Heaven, and just as He was an ambassador on Earth during His time here, when He left and was um, ascended back to Heaven again, right? God did not leave us without a member of the Godhead. We have the Holy Spirit that is with us. So, better than any ambassador that's in a foreign land and trying to, like, you know, intuit. What the president would want them to do or say or act, we have God with us. Right? God is with us still presently. And I think a lot of times we, we forget that, we skip over that. Second Corinthians ten seventeen says, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And the important is an ambassador doesn't glory in themselves, but they glory in the one that's sent them or in the country that sent them, right? The one that they're representing. A point here, God doesn't need us as ambassadors, right? God wants us as ambassadors. God commands us as ambassadors. And I think that's something worth pondering as we leave here today. This is the great commission that God has given us, that we're to follow the example of Christ. You know, all authority was given to Christ, and then he, he gives that to us through the great commission, So Matthew 18, right, the Great Commission. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so as we go from here, our charge as ambassadors for Christ, not because we want to, not because we ask to, but because we've been commanded to, is to go and speak with boldness. Now, I said at the beginning how much of an encouragement City on a Hill has been to me and my family, and I just want to encourage you all, as you know we go from here today, all of us, that we are to be a light to the city of Boston. We are to, be, we are to speak the gospel to the city, and we're to do so with boldness, because we have God with us. And we see this boldness, you know, in the New Testament, in Acts 4. Right after Christ has left, Peter and John are out, and they are speaking with boldness to those that are around them. And as they're hauled in before, like, the city leaders to confront them and say, hey, why are you speaking this way? Here's their response, Acts four thirteen. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. See, Peter and John were common men, just like we've been talking about, that not exceptional. They were common men, but they had been with Jesus, and they were speaking with the authority of the one who had sent them, and this was recognized by the culture. Acts 4, 31, similarly, so just a couple of verses later in that same chapter And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So as we wrap this up quickly, though, I think it's important to mention we are different from earthly ambassadors. You see, there's two types of ambassadors. There's uh, career foreign service officers. So these are State Department employees that have served their whole life in the State Department. They are very well-rounded, you know, and understand, you know, cultures and policy and how to operate. And then you have uh, political appointees. And political, pol- political appointees are folks that have typically supported the president for their run, you know, their campaigns or have been, like, loyal to them throughout their political careers. And they're given postings as a reward kind of for their um, loyalty And you can see the career foreign service officer, the one that's like spent their whole career doing postings around the world and has this deep understanding of kind of policy. Those are the ones you really wanna put in like the places that matter. And then the pinnacle appointees are the ones that you send to oftentimes very nice postings, our closest allies. So in Paris, London, Geneva, Tokyo, you know, places like that where we have lots of other ways to communicate you send these political appointees. Um, But here's the thing. Both these types of ambassadors, whether it's the political appointee or the career foreign service officer, believe they've gotten the posting as ambassador from something they've done. The career foreign service officer is like, hey, I have worked my way up the ranks. I am totally at the pinnacle of my profession and, and who I am, and I deserve this posting because of all of my skills and knowledge and experience, et cetera, et cetera. And the political appointee, on the other hand, has said, hey, I totally deserve this because I have been loyal, and I am like, you know, in tight, and I am getting this as, as a reward for all the work that I have put in to get someone in place, you know, to be the president or whatever. The difference with the Christian, though, with the gospel-centered person, is we see that there is no reason that God has chosen us to be ambassadors. In fact, the gospel-believing person will stand in wonderment and say, why in the world has God chosen me to be an ambassador for Christ? Why am I representing him? What possibly good can come from me a sinner representing the holy god and that is that is a uh, you know that is an an awesome thing to contemplate the grace of god that he would choose us as sinners to be his ambassadors in this world so christ as our ambassador came to earth not just to tell us about his country, but also to provide a way for us to enter it. You see, Christ, in John three sixteen and 17, we, we hear about what he did, right? So, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, Christ has paid the price for us to enter in, to this new city, this city with God. There's no visa requirement for us to get. There's no payments that we owe. There's no other means testing for citizenship or anything like that. Christ has paid the way for us. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As we're to go here and be an ambassador for Christ, I would just ask, if you have not given your life to Christ, today is the day that we ought to do so. And if we are followers of Christ, we ought to live as the ambassadors that God has uh, commissioned us and equipped us to be. And so let's go from here together with encouragement that we serve together, not alone, And may we do this with boldness as we go on mission for the one that sent us. Let's just pray with me real quick. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you have equipped us with your Holy Spirit, that you've given us your Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price for our sins. Lord, help us, help us, Lord, to be ambassadors for you. May we be faithful servants and followers as we go from here into our society and into the city that we might remember our citizenship in heaven, but might we seek the welfare of those that we are with. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.